We live in a world where there are two very unfortunate truths that when brought together affect the way that we, each of us, think about each other and about our circumstances. Those two truths are not new to us in the world we live in today. They're not necessarily uncommon when you look across the history of humanity, but we feel them now. These two truths are this. The first one is this, is that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, no matter what information we take in from our families, from the world around us, we are very clear about an incredible amount of pain. We're very clear about our own personal pain. We're very clear about our familial pain, our community pain. Pains that people from all over the world go through. We can't hide from them. We can't turn off the TV because our smartphone still tells us. We are surrounded constantly by pain. That's our first truth. The second truth is also this, is that we, while we have this incredible amount of pain, either within ourselves or around us, that we are dealing with on a day-by-day basis, we also have an incredible lack of trust in anything, in each other, in institutions, in churches, in communities, in leaders, in the world around us. An incredible amount of pain and an incredible lack of trust. What happens when those two things come together? I'll tell you. An incredible amount of pain, an incredible lack of of trust. Bring those together, you can describe it, and I think a very juvenile way, but I think we all understand what I say when I say this. When we have, when we add these two things together, the result is this idea of, well, you don't know what I've been through. There's head nods, there's understandings, there's, we all understand what that statement means. An incredible amount of pain, but you don't know what that's like. When we think of that phrase, I'm, I'm a youth pastor, and Youth for Christ is here as well. When we think of that phrase, I think there's a stereotype that goes on in our minds of just the, the edgy teenager who just is saying, well, well, you don't know what I've been through, Mom. You don't know what I, it's like, Dad. That's the stereotype, and perhaps there's a little bit of that that we hear and we kind of snicker and laugh at. But does that stop when we're no longer teenagers? Do you and I still possess those two conflicting things that provide this this thought process of, you don't know what I've been through. We may not say it like a frustrated teenager who may just need to go and get some sleep. I love my teens, by the way. I'm not picking on you guys. I'm picking on all of us. 
Sometimes we're the ones that say that. Either with, with for an example, I found myself in many times when I'm sitting around with, with people, people that I love, people that I care about, and we're praying for each other, and someone shares, I, I, I share this prayer request, and someone says, well, did you ever, what about this? Did you ever try that? Maybe, well, and, and, and you sit there, and you're kind, and you're and you listen, and whatever, and then in the back of my mind, there's that temptation there. Well, they don't know what that's like. They don't know what that's like. They've never been in that situation. Parents, when you're maybe talking about something around the dinner table with your children and they provide a very simple, easy answer and you may nod and smile along or you may smush the the dream that is within, within them of saying, I can help dad out with this one. They don't know what that's like. They don't know work stress. They don't know job stress. They don't know fill in the blank. You don't know what I've been through. It's a temptation of a way of thinking that you and I all struggle with, and the world around us struggles with it. I want to leave us in that place with that thinking, with that, that, that temptation of thought that you and I encounter every single day, and I want to I add that phrase into, and I want to look at what the scriptures may say about that. Because I think the passage that we're going to be going over today directly speaks into that way of thinking that you and I are so quick to go to. As you may have known, if you've been here for the past couple of weeks, we started a new series. We're going through the book of Mark. And I'm very, very excited to open up the book of Mark with you this morning. It's an incredible book, and it's been one that I, we said we were going to do, and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. This would be great, whatever. And then you, you get into it, and we look, and you go, oh my goodness. There's more here than, than one would think. There's more answers to questions that you and I ask every single day if we let it answer them for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be in a passage today, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15 today, and we're going to bring that thought of, you don't know what I've been through, and bring that face-to-face with the pages of scriptures and see exactly how God addresses that way of thinking. But before we do that, I would like us to spend some more time in prayer. So if you would, please... Join me in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we thank you that we can be in this space. We thank you, Lord, that you have created this space where your church can come together, single-handedly proclaiming the name of Jesus showing you the greatness you deserve and being a witness to your saving power. Lord, I thank you that this building is not the only place that is preaching your name this morning, but there are churches all over this community, all over this country, all over this world, all shouting the name of Jesus. As we heard a few weeks ago from one of our missionaries, Jesus is on the move. And I thank you that you are on the move. I thank you for the promises you have given us. I thank you that we know you're going to win. I thank you that we know we have meaning and peace in you. 
But Lord, even though we know it, help us to grasp it. Help us to grasp what those statements mean. May we remove the the pithiness of them and may they be actually life-saving truths for us in this time and place that you have put us in. Be with me this morning. Keep me from error as I preach your word. May you use the words that I say to encourage and to convict us where you know we need encouraging and convicting. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The king is coming. The king is coming. If you remember the message from last week, we opened the book of Mark with a simple message. The king is coming. As foretold by prophets hundreds of years ago who were designed by God to to give hope to a people then were being fulfilled in a time in the future. These people that were in this time were living in the moment where there was this messenger that came into the, out into the wilderness of a backwater province and the greatest empire the world had ever seen at the time. An unlikely character. A dirty looking character. John the Baptist came and went to the Jordan River and had a very simple message. Repent and be baptized in a baptism of repentance because there is someone coming who is greater than I. Though I baptize you with water, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And people came in droves. The passage said they came from the the province, the area of Judea and Jerusalem. All the peoples came and were were baptized and were repentant of their sins as this this messenger, this prophet like Elijah from the Old Testament was, was making a way for God, was saying that he's coming. Prepare yourselves. He's almost here. The king is coming. And then we get to this passage. When you imagine a king showing up somewhere, what comes into your mind? What comes into your mind when a king comes into a city, right down the city street, what comes to your mind? There may be different ideas that we may have. I love old Disney cartoons, not old, old for me, may not be old for some, I won't point fingers, but for me, old Disney cartoons, I love them, and one picture that comes to my mind is the movie Aladdin. Again, not very old for maybe some of you, but again, I will not point fingers. I have learned lessons. I think of the movie Aladdin, you know that scene where where Aladdin bursts into the city where where the sultan and princess Jasmine are, and he, he comes in and he's riding this big old elephant and he's got these servants going with them and there's these just dudes walking with with stacks of gold on their shoulders and there's these dancers and there's light and there's color and there's loud music playing and exotic animals just going parading down the street this guy's a big deal or at least that's what he was trying to communicate in order to impress the princess for more on that watch the movie aladdin 
I won't talk anymore about the movie. But that's what I think of. Do you not? Do you not think of that when you imagine somebody, some king, showing up somewhere and saying, I'm going to make my presence known. I'm a big deal. The king is coming. How does he show up in the book of Mark? Chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee. That's it. That's all you get. We don't know. He's not, he's not showing up in these, with these, he doesn't even have an elephant. He doesn't, he's not showing off, he's not showing, he's not, you know, blasting the trumpets, he, and he, he's, he's just, he's just, he's just some guy. One of the questions, a few of the questions we're asking about when we look through the book of Mark is, who is Jesus and what does he do? Who is he? So far, he's just some guy. He's some guy that shows up from the backwater town of the backwater province. Notice it says he comes from Nazareth, whereas before, those that were coming to John the Baptist were coming from Judea and all Jerusalem. These are different places. Nazareth was much further north in the, in the region of Galilee. Judea, Jerusalem, these were the Jewish hub. This is where the temple was. This is where the Jews resided and mainly lived. There were Jews in other places, obviously. Jesus was a Jew. If you look up in Galilee, you had, if you wanted to get to Galilee from Judea, you had to travel north. And if you traveled north, you had to either go through Samaria, which nobody wanted to go through Samaria, or you had to go through a place called the Decapolis, the town of ten cities. Deca, ten, polis, city. And all of these ten big cities were Gentile, unbelieving, non-Jewish cities. And then you go up into Galilee, and it had this kind of a, a melting pot sort of vibe of a place. Some Jews lived there, some Greeks lived there, some a lot of Gentiles lived with the Jews. It wasn't seen as any place cool or, 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 no, or of heavy note, or it wasn't a big deal. It was nothing like Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was nothing like any of the other cities in the Roman Empire. It's the backwater of a backwater, and this guy, Jesus, he just shows up. Who is Jesus? He's some guy that came from a backwater part of a backwater place. But he shows up, arrives at the River Jordan. The book of Mark tells us very few details of some of the things that happen. And that's something that I think can challenge one when they're reading the book of Mark. They're saying, well, why? What about in the book of John where Jesus shows up and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Mark doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention in the, from the books of, I believe, Matthew and Luke where, where Jesus shows up and John says, God, you baptize me. I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, no, you baptize me in order to fulfill all righteousness. We don't get that information. Why? Why is Mark hiding the details from us? Something unique about the book of Mark is that in Mark, the writer was very concerned about the things that Jesus did. It was what he did that was important. He mentioned stuff that Jesus says. 
You, you hear Jesus talk throughout the book of Mark, but nothing compared to the book of Matthew or the book of Luke or the book of John. Mark is telling the story of a Jesus of action, of doing stuff, going from place to place, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he went over there, and then he went over there, and then he did this, and he talked a little bit in between. He's an action guy. And what are the actions here? He comes out of Nazareth, up from Galilee, goes to the River Jordan, meets John the Baptist, this messenger sent from God, is baptized in the River Jordan, very humbly. And then in that moment, an incredible thing takes place. It's hard to picture what this looks like. My mind spins at the very thought of what is about to take place where after Jesus rises up out of the water, the Bible says that the, the heavens and the sky was torn apart, torn open. And a voice from heaven came crying, and it said this. I'm going to read it from what it says here. Where does it say it? Sorry, I'm, I'm, having, a, I'm having a moment here this morning. Verse 11, it says this. It says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What a powerful moment. And for, for those that may have been reading the book of Mark and, and remembering back to their synagogue Bible studies, they may have remembered the book of Isaiah. I'm going to turn there very quickly. Isaiah 64 Verse 1 says this, Oh, that you, being God, would rend the heavens, tear the heavens, and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. You may believe there are coincidences in the Bible, but if we believe that the scriptures tell us one complete story, we must believe that Mark was thinking of this, of this verse when he, when he was recounted of the story of Jesus being baptized. The heavens were rended, torn open. When I think of someone tearing something open, I think of a kid on Christmas morning. Kids, you know what I'm talking about? You're going, you see these presents, and you, you know the thing that you want is there, and, and you know it's in there somewhere, and eventually you're opening a present, and then you open it just enough to see, oh, that's what I was wanting. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a race, and you destroy the wrapping paper, and, and much to the dismay of your parents who have to clean it all up afterwards, you're, you're tearing it apart because you got to get at it. Oh, that you would tear the heavens open and come down. After the heavens are torn, it says that the Spirit, like a dove, descended on Jesus. There's this beautiful moment that takes place where we see very many wonderful things. Before we get to one of the things, I want us to go to one of our other old synagogue Bible studies and go to Isaiah 42. 42, verse 1. This is in the servant songs. These are, these are, this is clear messianic prophecy right here. This is good stuff. It says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice the connection. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will, he, yeah, that's good. Verse one. He will bring forth justice to the nation. I will put my spirit upon him. Notice these connections. This isn't just some story that Mark came up with. He's hearing these stories and thinking back to the Old Testament and saying, look at these connections. How powerful is this? Jesus, going out into the wilderness, comes to the Jordan, is baptized in a baptism of repentance. How does that even work? We'll get there in a moment. Is baptized, comes out, and we see an incredible illustration of God at work. We talked a little bit last week about the Trinity. Everyone tense and then relax. And here we get a very clear picture of the entirety of God happening. We have the Son of God, the one being baptized. If we were to believe what the scriptures say, completely man, completely God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in a mortal body. We hear the voice from heaven of the Father of God saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we also get the Spirit descending like a dove, indwelling the Son of God. We have all three members of the Trinity all in one place. Remember, the Trinity is, is, is these three persons who are all equally God and also completely separate beings, but also one God entirely. Three persons, one God. These people came out to the wilderness Jesus came out to the wilderness, and God was there. Back to the question, a baptism of repentance. We have to remember this was a baptism of repentance. John was saying, be baptized, repent of your sins, prepare yourselves because the king is coming. If we're to believe that Jesus is completely God, why in the world does he need to be baptized in repentance? I thought he didn't sin. That's a funny question may not be to the level of a John Paternoster question, but it's getting there. Why does Jesus need to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? Remember back to the first point we made. You don't know what I've been through. When Jesus humbles himself and goes through the thing that you and I need to go through, we all need to come face to face with our own repentance, repenting of our sins. He's not doing it because he needs it. He's doing it in order to walk in the same footsteps that you and I have to walk in. He's identifying with us in our weaknesses. Jesus is saying, I get your weaknesses. I get your struggles. I get the hurts and the burdens and the pain. We talked about the pain earlier. And I'm right there with you. Jesus identifying himself with our weaknesses, walking in our footsteps as we wrestle with being imperfect people. But he does all of this without sin. That's the, that's the difference. He does all of it while still remaining perfectly good and holy. Jesus identifies with us 
in our weaknesses. That's our first point for this morning. Our second point is in the second part of the passage. Where we get to, again, a a situation, a story, a a narrative. Some people like to use the word story or narrative. I use both interchangeably. It's just, it's, it's, it's me. We get to a very common part of the scriptures where it says that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Further out into the wilderness. If you thought the Jordan River was bad, keep going. Where it says that for 40 days he was tempted by the devil and was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Again, not a lot of detail here, folks. Not a lot of information. We don't get any of the, any, any of the, the temptations specifically. I love when Esther mentioned those things and that, that Jesus countered them with the word of God as an opportunity to resist the temptations. That was good stuff. Mark didn't do that. Mark just says he was out there. He was tempted for 40 days. He was with some wild animals. And the angels ministered to him. Why? Why is this the next step in Jesus' ministry here? Jesus is fresh on the scene, gets baptized, and you may think, okay, let's get out there. Let's get this thing going. The king is here. Let's get this thing on the move. Nope. We're going to spend a 40-day fasting vacation in the middle of nowhere with the creator of all evil and be tempted to fall into sin. Why does the Spirit have Jesus do that? What's the point of this? I think one of the main points of this, again, for the Old Testament student, they may remember the number 40 and go, hey, I've heard that number. Where have I heard that number before? Think 40 years. Think in the wilderness. Think the Israelites after they they went to the promised land and said, nope, that ain't going to happen. And God punished them and sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. In the 40 years, God went with them and, and followed them, and they had their, all of their book of numbers issues. Do you see the connection here? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's going through these same experiences that his people had gone through. And not just going through them, but, but going through these same battles that his people went through then and that we go through today. Jesus battled the battle of temptation. Jesus battled the same battles that we do. Again, all without sin. It's an interesting question. Well, wait, I thought he was completely God and he's completely good. And so how can he be tempted in the same way that you and I are tempted? How does that work? That may be more on the scale of a John Paternoster question. We're kind of phrasing them out here. How does this work? What are we talking? This is really weird, wild stuff. Well, your guess is 100% as good as many ones. We aren't given a clear answer as to how can a perfect son of God go through the same temptation that you and I do, yet still be completely holy. We're not given those answers. What we are given is that he is completely God incarnate in human form. And Hebrews chapter 10, which says he went through, he was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet without sin. We have to affirm both of these. This is one of those mysteries. You're getting a lot of mystery this morning of the Trinity and then now the incarnation. You're getting it hard today. You're getting it tough. You're doing great. 
But what we do have to recognize and have to affirm is that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. Every time we battle a temptation and we, we sit there and it may be accumulated, connected to some of that pain we go through, isn't all of our pain the result of sin? Isn't all the evil in the world the result of rebellion against God's commands? That high level of pain that we witness around us and we, we feel inside of us and in our families, is that not all the result of sin from the devil and then from Adam and Eve? All of our pain is rooted in sin and all of our, our battles involve fighting against sin and choosing God. Jesus did the exact same thing. Jesus brought himself through that battle to say, I've been there. I get it. Those pains you have, those hurts you experience every time you sit there and that person just makes you want to, I don't know, you fill in that blank. That's a dangerous spot for me to say. Every time you're in that place or, or you're, you find yourself alone and tempted and, and you're, you're battling these, these, these inner battles or your thoughts are going places you don't want them to go, Jesus is there saying, I get it. I'm with you. I've, I've done this before. You can get out of this. You can choose God. You can rely on my strength to win this war. To win this battle. Jesus battled the same battles that we do, yet perfectly. That's our second point for this morning. So as we're in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes, he's baptized, he identifies with our weaknesses, he goes, he follows the spirits leading into the wilderness. He battles the same battles that we do. Battled the same battles. He doesn't battle them anymore. Then we're finally at this point where, in this next part of the passage, just these two final verses here for us today, actually. Um, four verses, or no. No, two verses. I was right. We finally get to this point where the heading in your, ES, your good old ESV Bible says Jesus begins his ministry. Finally, he's here. He's going to start. The king is coming. Notice again, he goes to Galilee. He doesn't go to the hubbub of the Jewish peoples. He doesn't, he doesn't go to, some, or to, to Judea or Jerusalem. He goes back up home to Galilee. And I love these words. And I'll read them specifically here. It says that he went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. We're there. We've made it. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We're almost there. Whenever I've been reading the scriptures and reading Jesus' words, and as I've been going through Mark, the kingdom of God is one of those topics that I, I, as I'm reading, I feel like I should know more about it than I do. 
Does anyone else get that sort of vibe when you're reading the scriptures? You're like, I, I know that this is, this is important. Jesus said this a lot, but I don't, like, what does he talk? Well, how is this all working? What's going, what? The kingdom is here, but it's not here, but it's kind of here. And he says it's at hand, and he says it's like this, and like, like seeds, and like, oh, excuse me, voice crack. Like seeds, and like all the mustard seeds, and, and talents, and all this sort of stuff. What is this kingdom of God? That's one of our questions we're asking in the book of Mark, right? Who is Jesus? What's he doing? What did he do? What did he say? What is the kingdom of God? These two verses don't give us much, but they give us, they give us an excellent, an excellent clue as to what this kingdom of God is. First off, they say that the time is fulfilled, so it means it's, it's at hand. It's here. Then it also says, repent and believe in the gospel. Remember last week when we talked a little bit about the gospel and the, uh, the imperial proclamation of good news. The word gospel isn't uniquely a Christian term. It was a political term announcing the, the, the bringing of the new Caesar to rule over the peoples in the Roman Empire. It was a political exaltation and a powerful display. Look at the good news of this new guy coming in who's gonna bring us to prosperity. I love that Christians stole that word. Said that there is a better gospel. This new Lord didn't come with a parade he didn't come with riches or, or, or seeming earthly power. He didn't come like Aladdin. This new king came humbly. This new king walked in the steps of his subjects. This new king battled the same battles of his people. And better yet, this new king says, I've been there in those weaknesses. I've been there in those battles. There's a way out. There's a way out of those battles. There's a way to find peace in those weaknesses. Repent. Believe in the gospel. This kingdom of God is a direct challenge to the worldly institutions and leadership and says there's something better for you. If that's all you think is as good as it gets, you are missing out. And this is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the belief that Jesus Christ came to earth, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for us imperfect people and rose from the dead, victorious over the powers of sin three days later. He doesn't just, I love Jesus because he, he identifies with us in that struggle we have of, you don't know what I've been through, dude. Jesus says, I do, and I'm getting you out of it. I'm giving you freedom from it. I'm giving you relief. You don't have to be identified by your weaknesses. You don't have to battle these battles anymore. Choose Jesus. Jesus, who reveals himself to us, who overpowers us, who shows us our need for him as our savior, shows us our desperate place as sinful people, separated from the holiness and goodness of our creator. 
brings us, awakens us. It's, the Bible says we're born again, brought to the awareness of our need for the Son of God to, to, to pay for our sins, to make ourselves right with God, surrendering our lives to Jesus, choosing him, identifying with him, not with our weaknesses, trusting in him in the midst of our battles and getting victory. Jesus announces the end of our weaknesses and battles. This kingdom of God and all of its complexities is the beginning of the end of sin's control on your life and mine. We may say, you don't know what I've been through, and if we don't say it, we may certainly think it. But Jesus knows what we have been through and offers us freedom. We all have the opportunity to ask today, have I believed, has, have I believed this message that I am free? Have I believed in this message of hope that God has given us? Am I sitting in my weakness and in my battles and in my struggles and am I identifying with all of these things? holding them closer to me than perhaps I'd be proud of saying, holding on to them tightly, or am I letting go and saying, God, you are in charge of my life. Lord, I wish to have not my own sin, but your holiness. I wish for you to guide me in every step that I do, every struggle I have, every hurt I have, whether it's in family, whether it's in church life, whether it's in the world around us. Am I giving every struggle I have to the throne of God and saying, God, give me the strength to work through these. Give me your wisdom in all of this. Because I can't do it alone. I pray that if there's anybody in this room who does not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would be working on your hearts even now, showing us our need for him as our savior and surrendering your life to Jesus. If that is the case for you, I'd love to pray for you in that and to have that conversation if you would like it. We may live in a world where it is hard to trust others in the pain that we so often go through, yet God himself came to this world of pain. He may have sat with us on the curb with our scraped up knee or sat with us in the hospital room of one of our family members. He knows our temptations. He knows our weaknesses and has offered us freedom in his kingdom as his loyal subject. We can put our trust in this coming king who fought our greatest enemy and won. I pray that you would put your faith and trust in Jesus this morning.